You're listening to the teaching podcast of The Crossing Church. We exist so that the real you can have a daily encounter with the real Jesus in word and deed. For more information about our church, visit crossingparagold.com. If you were a a kid or a teenager growing up in the church, anywhere between the late 80s to late 90s, then you might remember some of the cheesiness and uh, kind of bizarre stuff that came out of the Christian subculture of that time. And of course, it was all in this effort to kind of rebel against secular culture and and in this heart of I don't want to do anything to associate with anything that could be of the devil or possibly give the devil a foothold in my life. And so... Uh, what, what, what ended up happening was we would kind of take things from secular culture, Christians would, and sort of reclaim them um, as their own. And so just to give you some examples here, uh, we ended up taking something from secular radio like Billy Ray Cyrus's Achy Breaky Heart, and then you end up with this Christian t-shirt. I think we, yeah, okay, there we go. Only Jesus can heal your achy breaky heart. Um, <clears throat> true, uh, I would wear it uh, in the spirit of truth and in the spirit of the 90s, which are great. Uh, but it's a bit corny. So even worse, you take a you take a secular retail store like Abercrombie and Fitch, and Christians. You know, some of you know where this is going. Uh, Christians boycott this, and you end up with this T-shirt here. Uh, yeah, a breadcrumb and fish. So um, clever, not cool though. Um, <laughs> clearly, doesn't earn you any cool points. I don't even think that Jesus thinks it's cool, but. Uh, so, and if you, if you were a kid and a teenager back in this time, of course, you remember the, the major push in the 80s and 90s for a lot of Christians was this push against television, uh, movies, and especially music. And, and remember, the heart, again, behind all this is you don't want to do or watch or listen to or associate with anything that could give the devil a foothold in your life. And so I remember being a, teach, a teenager in the youth group, and there was all this pressure to like throw away or burn all your secular tapes or CDs. Uh, and replace them with Christian music, which at the time, if I'm being honest, I thought was as lame as humanly possible. Um, and I just was not going to trade in my Nirvana record for a Carmen record uh, or a Michael W. Smith record. And if that's your jam, I had somebody this week say like, dude, Michael W. Smith was my jam. And I'm like, if that's your jam, I'm, I promise I'm not trying to offend you. That's great. Uh, this probably says way more about me than it does about you. But for whatever reason, I just, at that time, I thought most of the stuff coming out of the Christian music scene was so bad. Like I remember uh, one time showing up to youth group and Jared and I grew up in the same youth group. So I showed up in the gym because you've got to have a gym. And so we were in the gym and there's this song blaring that sounds familiar to me. But then I realized it's a Christian remake of Light My Fire by The Doors. Except so in the chorus they're singing, I'm going to do this for you, okay? For, this is for free. But in the chorus they're singing, come on Christian, get on fire. Come on, Christian, get on fire. Try to set the world on fire. Yeah, okay, right. And so I I just remember being like 16 years old and going, what is happening? Like, why would you do this to Jim Morrison? I don't understand. 
I don't respect it. I don't agree with it. Uh, and so, and then like every band's acronym was satanic, right? Like ACDC was antichrist, devil's children, and KISS was knights in Satan's service, which both were not true acronyms. And by the way, in high school, my dad took me to the Memphis Pyramid to see both of those bands live. I don't think he told his Sunday school director, but he did. Um, and so this, this is the world I grew up in. And then something happens to me when I'm 18 years old. Jesus breaks into my life and captures my heart. And I have this like overhaul of my desires. And I'm like, all I want to do is please God and make Jesus known. And if that means I need to get rid of like all my rated R movies and all my secular CDs, and we're like, whatever, I'll do it. I'll, I'll do it. And so I did. Well, kind of. I, got, I mean, I got rid of most of my CDs. You could justify back then that if it might be about God, you can keep it. Which means I kept all my Creed CDs. But other than that, like it was in the trash, right? And so it was so hard, like Bush, Nirvana, Pearl Jam, all of it just in the trash. Some of you are weeping. Um, and so I went through this period where um, kind of coming out of that, like in my zeal to follow Jesus, plus my immaturity, I overcorrected. And I became really judgmental about this kind of stuff. And I actually remember walking into my little sister's bedroom one time and she was with a friend. They were like listening to like the Spice Girls or something. And I walked right into her room and like opened up her boom box and ripped that CD out and said, I can't believe you call yourself a Christian. You listen to this trash. And I like threw it on the ground. It was like Jedi level shaming uh, for, for me and not my proudest moment. But that's, that's kind of where I was for a season. Like I was in that camp for a while. And I would say now, um, I'm pushing 37, um, still pretty young, uh, but as I've grown some in my faith, I'm, I'm probably somewhere in the middle. Like I appreciate uh, that God creates people with gifts for good writing and good musicianship, even if those people aren't Christians, even if they don't consciously use those gifts to glorify God. I glorify God when I listen to it. I think it's beautiful and amazing. I don't appreciate, however, people using their gifts to create music that's sexually perverted, that downgrades women, that promotes what the Bible would call sin, or that's just thoughtlessly unoriginal, like bro country. That's, that's a joke. Uh, but it's also true. I don't like, I don't know. There's like a, um, like, I feel like there's like a songwriter's kit in Nashville somewhere. That's like, if you take these lyrics and put four chords to them, you'll get a bro country hit. It's got it. They're all the same. Like it's, I'm not, I'm not crazy. It's got to say something about my truck and her jeans and Saturday night and dirt roads and sipping on something and you got a hit. And so I don't know. I don't appreciate it. I don't, I don't like it. And if you need to talk with me about that after the service, I'd be happy to. But that's a whole other sermon. Here's the point kind of in sharing all of this. Okay. My point is this. Okay. Most of us who grew up in that culture, um, if you didn't grow up in that culture, by the way, I just want to invite you to lean in and still listen because all this applies to you all the same. But most of us who grew up and came out of that culture, we, we grew up and, and we realized that following Jesus doesn't mean you have to boycott certain brands of clothing or certain bands or artists or whatever. But it's, it's easy for us, or at least it's easy for me, to look back on the fundamentalism of the 80s and 90s and want to scoff and kind of laugh at and make fun of my parents' and grandparents' generations. But then the older I get... And the longer I follow Jesus in this world, I can't help but wonder if maybe they were on to something. And so the question I want to invite us to consider this morning is, what if 
what if those generations were actually more wise and more aware of spiritual realities than we are in this cultural moment? What if in our attempts to grow up and throw off the legalism of our youth, we've actually overcorrected and we lean now more on the side of carelessness and callousness than we do holiness? So there's, there's this expression of throwing the baby out with the bathwater, right? Which means that you, you in, in an effort to throw off what is bad, you also throw off everything that's good and right and true about it. And, and so here's our concern as pastors. Our concern is that um, in the name of maturity or in the name of grace or in the name of gospel freedom or whatever, many who call themselves Christians in our culture have thrown the baby out with the bathwater when it comes to this kind of stuff. And we're missing the deeper truth that those generations were onto, which is this. You can actually give the devil a foothold. Like, I don't, I don't think you're going to get demon possessed. I'm not sure if you're going to get demon possessed by listening to Billy Ray Cyrus, but don't miss the truth behind the warning, which is there, there are certain things that you can do or not do in your life that open you up and make you vulnerable to the enemy's attack and actually give him permission to come in and spread his destructive influence in your life. And the Bible has a term for that. It's called giving the devil a foothold. Okay, and that's where I want to focus this morning. So you don't have to take your old youth director's word for it, but take it from the Apostle Paul. Okay, look back with me at Ephesians 4, and I actually want to back up for the sake of context to verse 17. Here's what Paul says in verse 17. Ephesians 4. So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord. So Paul says, I'm being serious about this. You must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardening of hearts. And check this out. They've lost all sensitivity and have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they are full of greed. In other words, it doesn't matter how much they indulge, how much they consume, it's never enough, and they always want more. And so right here, Paul's given us the cultural backdrop of this letter, which is key. Paul's writing to a group of Christians in a culture that's radically out of step with the way of Jesus. In Ephesus, you have its home to Aphrodite, the goddess of sexuality. So you've got people that will come from miles all around to worship her by having sex with prostitutes at her temple. Um, even more famous, Ephesus is the home of Artemis, the goddess of, of fertility and prosperity. And you have her temple, the Artemisian in Ephesus, which is one of the eight wonders of the world. So you've got people from all over the planet that will come every year, thousands of people that will come in to, to, to vacation and stay in Ephesus and to party. And, and because of that, Ephesus is this very wealthy, influential place. And so you've got this kind of consumeristic culture in Ephesus that's obsessed with power and beauty and money and entertainment and sex, which should sound very familiar to us because it's pretty much describing our culture. And so Paul's writing this letter in, 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 to a church in the heart of that culture, just like us, to address the very real temptation that if we're not careful as disciples of Jesus, we will be pressed and formed into the image of the culture and we'll open ourselves up to the enemy's influence. And so in this text, he says, I'm serious. Don't even flirt with living like those in the culture. Uh, you'll become like one of them. 
He says their minds are warped. That's what it means to have a dark understanding. They have warped minds. They're slaves to their desires. They've indulged in sin to the point that, that they're, they're, they've de- they're desensitized, right? Anybody ever tell you that? Like you watch too much MTV, you're going to get desensitized to what's right and wrong. Like I used to hear that a lot. Paul says, maybe there's something to this, right? And, and worse, they're separated from the life of God, he says. Morally insensitive, slaves to their desires, if, if we're being honest, there's, at least for me, there's a part of me, if I stop right here, that says, when I hear Paul say this, there's this thing that wakes up from my youth that kind of says, mm, sounds kind of like old school fundamentalist preaching. Like, like I said, like, the, like my grandpa used to tell me that too much MTV is going to rot my brains. And, and if we're honest, there's this thing in us that when we hear Paul say warped mind, hard heart, we're like, yeah, 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 that, that's those people. I'll never be like that. Sure. I've got areas in my life I need to work on. You know, sometimes I tell a white lie. Sometimes I gossip. Sometimes I have too much to drink. What, whatever it might be. You know what the areas are. Everybody's got their vices, right? Nobody's perfect. I've got these areas. But, but the kind of the classic line somewhere buried in, in us is, I'm not going to go that far. Like, at the end of the day, maybe I'm dabbling. Maybe I'm blowing off some steam. Maybe I'm having a little bit of fun here. But like, I, I, give me a break. I'm in control um, I know where my line is, and I'm not going to let it go that far. And Paul is just brilliant at anticipating our reactions. Because just a few verses later in verse 27, he gives us this warning and this exhortation, seven simple words. Do not give the devil a foothold. Paul says, I'm serious I know the temptation you're up against day in and day out. Whatever you do, don't give the devil a foothold in your life. And of course, the natural question we have to ask here is, what's Paul talking about? What what does it mean to give the devil a foothold? Okay, and to understand the gravity of what Paul's saying here, we need to understand what this word actually means. So um, foothold in Greek is the word topos. It's where we get our word topography. Sometimes you see this word translated opportunity or chance, but more literally, the word just means place. I think King James Bible actually translates it the best, and now I do probably sound like an old school preacher. I think King James got it right. Give the Bible, or give the devil, give the Bible no place, good grief. Definitely give the Bible a place in your life. Give the devil no place, no place in your life. Don't give the devil a place in your life. Um, the image of what Paul's getting at really comes to life when you, when you realize that this word is often used in the military context. So it's, it's the word for when you survey an enemy's territory and you're looking for a place, a foothold where you can get in and then from that place you can, you can launch a deeper invasion and a deeper attack. Here's a good picture for it right here. So I think foothold, when you, th- when you hear foothold, it's really the same thing as the, it's the equivalent of, 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 a, of a beachhead. And if you're not familiar with what that is, um, probably the most famous image of a beachhead in American history would be this. It's the invasion of Normandy by the Allied forces in World War II. And this, is, this picture was taken. It's a real picture from D-Day, June 6, 1944, the largest seaborne invasion in world history. And so the thinking behind this was, look, if we're going liber- to get in and liberate France from this is the initial thinking, liberate France from German occupation, then, we, then the strategy is we need an access point. 
Right? Like we need a place where we can get behind enemy lines and then, and then from that place open the door to more troops and, and more weapons and all of this so that we can in, we advance our mission and win the war. And you go back and you read these World War II scholars and they say, this is the pivotal moment. Like from this tiny beachhead, we were able to do just that. Go in, advance our mission, and eventually win the European war. So it shouldn't surprise us in a conversation around spiritual war that knowing this is a classic strategy in war, this is something that just, this is just what you do when you're trying to win a battle, that the enemy, our enemy, we're in a real war with a real enemy and he has the exact same strategy. Like we've talked for the last couple of weeks about what's the devil's strategy and it's lies, right? He comes at you with lies. He wants to destroy you by deceiving you. But how does he get to you with those lies? How does he plant his voice inside your heart and begin to grow his destructive influence? He does it the same way you would advance a physical military attack. He does it. This is how he does it. He does it with footholds, which is to say he surveys, he surveys the territory of your life and he looks for the places where you're already giving him grounds and he jumps at that. And he says, this is my entry point. Um, he surveys your life looking for a place to get in. It's just what the word means. Um, I, was, I thought about this this week I was, I was, as I was thinking about Satan surveying my life, like the devil looking into my life and looking for a place to get in, have influence. I was reminded of Jesus' words to Peter in Luke twenty two thirty one, when Jesus tells Peter, Simon, Simon, Satan has demanded to have you, and he is sifting you as if you were a piece of wheat. When you sift something, you carefully examine it, right? And you, you meticulously pick your way through it until you find what it is that you're looking for. Satan is a sifter. And he carefully sifts and examines your life, looking for any place where he can get in and destroy you. And so what does Paul say? Paul says, hey, wherever those places are for you, close the door on those places and do not give the devil a foothold. Because there's an old saying, right? Talk back to me here. When you give the devil an inch, he takes what? A mile, right? Or to, to use Paul's language in 2 Corinthians 10.4, when you give the devil a foothold, he takes a stronghold. You give the devil a foothold, he comes in and establishes what Paul calls in 2 Corinthians 10.4, a stronghold. Again, stronghold is just another military term. One scholar says it like this. I'll put it on the screen for you. A stronghold was a strongly fortified defensive structure, a fortress that often included a large stone wall around it. Some of these walls were as high as 50 feet and were 10 feet thick. Their purpose was to keep an invading army out of the city. Paul uses this analogy in 2 Corinthians 10.4 to illustrate how Satan wants to hold us in bondage. Satan seeks to establish spiritual strongholds, tall, thick walls of deception in our minds, bodies, and souls that keep us isolated in darkness, block us from experiencing the presence of God and the abundant life he offers in Christ. The devil wants to gain ground on you, build a fortress in your soul, and protect his territory. And these strongholds are established through footholds, through giving the devil an access point in your life. 
So I think I've made my point. But to sum it up, what this scholar is getting at and what Paul is getting at is that you may never consciously make an arrangement or an agreement with the devil. You may never make a deal with the devil. But there are things that you can do, subconsciously do or not do, that give him a place in your life and give him permission to come into your life and wreak havoc. Colin Smith wrote a book on Judas Iscariot, and he says this, uh, Satan doesn't gain a foothold in the lives of people who are walking in the light with Jesus. He only gains access when we open the door. So in a lot of that, I think the question, next question we have to ask is, what are some things that we do to open the door? Right? Like, what are some, practically speaking, what are some of the ways that we are prone to give the devil a foothold? And I'm glad you asked. Let's talk about it. Um, surrounding, let's go back to Ephesians 4. Okay, surrounding verse 27, Paul gives some examples from everyday life where we're tempted to give the devil a foothold. And if we pay attention, we notice a pattern. Paul mentions anger in verse 26, stealing in verse 28, and unwholesome talk in verse 29. And what scholars point out is that, yes, Paul's given some specific examples, uh, but, but really he's talking about, if you zoom out, he's talking about three broad categories or basic areas where we make ourselves vulnerable to the enemy's attack. And so if you think about it, anger has to do with your emotions. Stealing is done with your hands. Unwholesome talk has to do with your words. And so Paul's outlining three basic areas where the enemy tries to get a foothold in what you do with your emotions, in what you do with your hands, and in what you do with your words. Now, a brief word on each. Let's start with emotions. It's fun stuff. Um, Look at verse 26. Back at verse 26. Paul says, In your anger, do not sin. And I, I think the ESV actually is better here. It says, Be angry. And don't sin. It's actually a command. Paul's saying, go ahead and be angry. Just don't sin in your anger. And so you notice here, he's not condemning anger. There's nothing wrong with anger. But what Paul's getting at is you have to navigate your anger in such a way that is mature and healthy and in such a way that doesn't lead you into sin. And if you take that and zoom out, you can say that about any emotion. Fear, shame, whatever. You can say this about any emotion. And, you know, we talk a lot about feelings and about emotional health as a church. That's because we believe that's a fundamental part of your humanity, your discipleship. Uh, the truth is we are emotional beings created in the image of an emotional God. God is highly emotional. He's not controlled by his emotions. He knows how to navigate them and what to do with them. We don't. Okay? There's nothing wrong with having emotions. The problem is, here's the problem. When sin enters the story in Genesis 3, we become disconnected from God disconnected from each other, and disconnected from ourselves. And so now, just like Adam and Eve, often I don't know what to do with what I'm feeling on the inside. And I spend all my energy on the outside trying to manage it. I hide from it, I cover, I blame, I consume, I do whatever I can on the outside to manage and cope with what's going on on the inside. And so listen, we want to try, like feelings, especially among men in our culture, is a bad word. And I'm telling you, we'll do, we'll do anything to try to avoid it even using logic. So I'll camp out on this for two seconds here. I think what makes this even harder for us in a culture, as a culture, is that we've been shaped since the Enlightenment, like since the 17th century, to believe that we're just rational, thinking things. 
like that if you think better, you'll live better. And this has made its way into the church. Like you can think your way to holiness. All you need is really good, tight theology like the Pharisees had. And, and you can like avoid the devil's attacks and you can stay holy and stay connected to Jesus. And I'm going to tell you, good, tight, awesome theology is necessary, good, beautiful, right, and true. And it's not enough. Because at the end of the day, you're first and foremost an emotional creature. That's how you came into this world with a heart that longs and feels and desires. And that is where the enemy wants to attack you. So Mark Sayers says it like this. Since the Enlightenment, we've built this concept of self that we are these rational beings, and we can just stop and disengage from the world and rationally think about everything. But really, the anthropology that we understand as humans is that we're driven by desires, we're driven by emotions, this means we are far more easily tricked than we realize. Boil it down. Here, here we go. When Satan comes at you, he comes at you with his lies. He does it the exact same way. that basic, It's a basic marketing and advertising strategy. When people want to sell you a car or whatever they want to sell you on, on TV, look at any commercial. They're not, it's not aimed at your rational mind. Here's logical reason X, Y, and Z why you need this product. They're aiming at a deeper part of you. Uh, a, 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 a part of you that longs and desires and feels that's beneath the hood of consciousness. You don't even know it's there because most of the time you're disconnected from it. And so they'll sit to try to sell you this product. It's you need this. Like this will satisfy your deepest longings. This will make you feel better about yourself. This will numb your pain. This will make you beautiful. This will make you desirable. This will make all your dreams come true. This is why you need this product. And when the devil comes at you, all they're doing is taking a page right out of his book. Like he never, he never aims at your rational mind because he would never get you. I, I'm too smart for that. I, it, it, sin is never a logical deal. Nobody says, I'm going to show up at work and blow up on my boss and lose my job today. That's an emotional deal. It's like, I'm going to develop a pornography habit and eventually I'm going to abandon my family. Like none of that's ever logical. So, Satan doesn't come at your logical mind. He comes at this part of you, this, this subconscious, emotional part of you that's super vulnerable to his attack. And you just need to be aware of that. And if we come back to, to kind of put this in, in, in um, to try this on a little bit, let's come back to Paul's example of anger because it's easy for us to go here. Um, all of us in the room know what it's like to be, raise your hand if you know what it's like to be hurt by someone. Yeah. Raise your hand if you know what it's like to hurt someone. Yeah, we, we're on both sides, right? Um, it's okay to feel, if you've been hurt, it's okay to feel angry about your pain. Like some of you uh, have experienced severe trauma and deep wounds in your life. You should be angry. I believe God's angry about the injustice that was done to you. But here, here's where Paul's getting at when he says, don't let the sun go down on your anger. He's saying, if we don't take ownership of our anger or whatever emotion you're feeling, and process that with God, like we see in the Psalms, if we hold people in contempt and we refuse to forgive the people who have hurt us, a root of bitterness, Hebrews says, Hebrews 12 says, a root of bitterness will begin to grow. And in that place, you'll give the devil a foothold. And so then here's what he does. He comes in and pushes on the pain, the subconscious pain. He pushes on the wounds that you carry, that you brought even in this room with you. He pushes on that, and he wants to lie to you and get you to believe that your trauma is your ultimate identity. 
Trauma is real, but it's not the summation of who you are. He will lie to you and say, you know what? Being a victim is the truest thing about you. And he wants to bring fake news and false narratives to the fear and the anxiety and the shame and the sense of abandonment that you carry around your hurt. And he wants to keep you in that place. And from that place, grow his destructive influence. And so Paul says, look, don't let the sun go down on your anger, which is his way of saying, don't neglect your emotional reality here. Don't just go to bed. Don't just keep working. Don't just keep pushing. Don't just keep running and pretend like all this stuff's not cooking inside of you. Deal with it, right? Deal with it. Don't neglect. Don't let it fester. Don't give the devil a foothold because he'll take it every time. Moving on. Paul, in verse 28, moves from what we do with our emotions to what we do with our hands. So look what he says in verse 28. Anyone who's been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their own hands. Notice, Paul's not just talking about stealing. If you zoom out, Paul says, what I'm really talking about here is doing something useful with your hands, something useful with your time, something useful with your gifts, with your energy. And so the question this, this raises for me is, how am I spending my time and my energy and my resources? In ways that are useful and fruitful or in ways that are wasteful or downright sinful? Another way to say it is, what are the rhythms and the habits and the behaviors that you're living into? And we've said before that the things you do do something to you. So the habits that you give yourselves to, the practices, the behaviors, the stuff that you're doing... It has a way of getting in your core and shaping your desires, which shapes how you live, which shapes who or what you become. And so the question we have to ask is, okay, okay, are the things which I'm dedicating my time, energy, and resources to leading me to Jesus and becoming more like him, or are they making me more susceptible to the devil's schemes? Are they opening me up for attack? Is it possible that you're giving the devil a foothold by, you know, the things you listen to, the things you look at, the things you do with your body, with your sexuality, with your money, your consuming habits, whether it's the food you consume or shopping or video games or just consuming screen time, man leaves us distracted and vulnerable to attack. How distracted we are with these, these screens. Last December, this is my conviction, I won't put this on everybody, but last uh, December, I felt the conviction of the Spirit to delete my Facebook and Instagram apps from my phone because I was spending way too much time there, and for me, it became a foothold. Um, I was always distracted. I was always disconnected from, from God and what He's doing around me and in me, and um, I, you know, for me, it just became this place where I, I saw way too many like spring break bikini pictures I didn't ask to see. Uh, I was comparing myself with other people's life and like there was this sometimes jealousy or envy or judgmentalism that was growing. I would see somebody post some political statement and think, what an idiot. Like I just had this stuff growing in me, right? And so for me, it became a foothold, a place where sin could grow in my life. And maybe you hear that example, and there's this part of you that says, yeah, but that's not that bad. Like, I mean, at least you weren't looking at pornography or like hooking up with somebody or like, but, but see, that's, that's the nature of a foothold. What, what the devil doesn't want you to know is that the results, okay, listen to this, the results of giving into sin 
even in small, subtle ways, over time, will eventually grow into something that will eat you alive. That's how footholds work. And so in this text, Paul says, how are you spending your time? What are you doing with your hands, your life, your gifts, your body? What are you doing? Pay attention to your habits and what the Spirit is trying to tell you this morning. And then finally, he gives this example. Okay, third broad category here, verse 29. He moves from what you do with your feelings to what you do with your hands to what you do with your words. And here's what he says. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths. I feel like I'm in my grandma's kitchen. Only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs. The question here is, how do you talk to people? Or how do you talk about people to the people you're talking to? Um, Are your words life-giving? Do they build others up in Christ or do they tear people down? Uh, we've started this thing with our staff that, that Jared has initiated that's been so good, uh, where every Monday morning we have a brief uh, staff meeting, and we start that staff meeting by going around the room and speaking a word of encouragement to one another. And so it's just like, man, here's where I see the beauty of Jesus in you. Here's where I see evidence of grace in your life. And, 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 and I'm telling you, it is literally one of the most encouraging things to my soul. Like it, it builds up my faith. It spurs me on. It makes me want to keep following Jesus. It makes me want to keep going. And it reminds me that the people around me are just like me. They need encouragement too. And I'll tell you what they don't need. What they don't need are my little jabs. What they don't need is my like sideways energy and my negative spirit and my incessant criticism and always pointing out their flaws. You know, there's a reason why the rule is five compliments for every criticism. You want to know why that's a rule? Because your soul runs on encouragement and affirmation, which, you, which is from Jesus the source, which comes 90% of the time through his body. That's why the Bible commands us to talk to each other this way, to build each other up with our words, to encourage one another, spur one another on to love and good deeds. Your soul runs on this. So how do you talk to people? How do you talk about people? Or how about this question? How do you talk to yourself? Is your self-talk unwholesome? Is it building up? Or do you live with this inner critic that just shames you and berates you and shoulds all over you and talks about how you're a failure and you're not good enough and there's no way God loves you and you should just quit? Am I the only one? Like, Paul says, Paul says when you give yourself to that kind of talk, that unwholesome, not building up talk, whether it's talk to yourself, talk to other people, talk about other people, when you do that, you open the door for the devil. He wants to come in and, and bring lies to that kind of narrative and, and just affirm it, just affirm what you're saying. Like, he wants to affirm what you're saying about yourself, and then in your relationships, he wants to fuel this spirit of unkindness this lack of compassion, this judgmentalism, this self-righteousness, and this self-hatred. And so Paul says, don't do that. Don't give the devil a foothold. Three basic areas to sum it up. Um, Paul says we open ourselves up and we do this in in what we do with our emotions and what we do with our hands and in what we do with our words. These are places you open yourselves up to attack. And listen, he only needs a tiny opening. How many of you have ever split wood before? 
I grew up with a wood-burning fireplace, had one in Kansas City, have one now. So when you split wood, the rule is you aim for the tiny cracks. You aim for the tiny crack, and if you hit it, you'll split it. Like you'll open it wide. All you got to do is aim for the small cracks. This is exactly Satan's strategy. And all he needs is a tiny opening. So Paul says, don't give it to him. Close the door. Which brings us to our final point. How do you do that? How do you do that? How do we stand against the enemy's schemes? And how do we guard ourselves against uh, giving the devil a foothold? So three things here and we're done. Okay, And this will also lead us into our practice for the week. Three things. You've been very patient and we'll, we'll wrap up here. Number one. Um, we have to start thinking more like soldiers and less like civilians. Paul has this great line in 2 Timothy 2.4 where he says, No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. It's a great line. You know what's crazy? If you go back and you look at footage of American life back in the States during World War II, you would never know we're in a war. Because people are working jobs, buying stuff, barbecuing, making babies, and enjoying their life. Drinking Coca-Cola and just like playing in the sprinkler and they're having a blast. And you would never know that there's a war going on around them. And listen, all those things are fine. There's nothing wrong with any of those things, um, especially Coca-Cola and sprinklers. But if that's all you can see, you are extremely deceived. If, if you can't see the, the bigger picture that like you're, you, you, are, you think you're just getting up and just going to work, but like you're, you're not, you're not. You think you're just grabbing your phone and unlocking it and, and like numbing out, but you're not. Like there is every moment of every day, there is a battle waging for your soul. And Paul says, we've got to stop thinking like civilians and realize that we're soldiers, which leads us into the second thing here. When you're a soldier, you guard your perimeter. You, you, which means we need to set up some spiritual guardrails or boundaries that keep the enemy out of our territory. And so, if we're honest, there's, there's a question that we tend to ask, which is this kind of question of where's the line? Or at least I know I ask it. Um, how close can we get without actually sinning? Like, where's the line? I remember when my wife and I were dating, having like serious theological, philosophical conversations about where's the line? And it's a stupid question. Um, first of all, there's no formula for figuring out where the line is, and I'm not wise enough to figure out where. I don't know what my threshold is. I'm just not. I'm not wise enough to know that. It's not. It's classified information. And you're asking the wrong question. The question is not where's the line and how close can I get to sin. The question is what do I need to do to stay close to Jesus when there's a real enemy that wants to eat my lunch. And, and the way you do that is two things. You identify your potential footholds and you set up spiritual guardrails. That's our practice for the week. We're going to work this out in, in, in your missional community and work this out in the context of DNAs. I just want to encourage you guys this week to get some time alone with yourself and with, with Jesus. And just ask the Spirit, okay, help me see any areas or places in my life where I'm currently or, or, or tempted to give the enemy a foothold and write those down. And then, in light of that, it's quite simply, what are the guardrails you need to put up? Maybe for you it's getting off Facebook or Snapchat or Instagram, or maybe it's music or movies or TV that's just unwholesome. 
Maybe it's boundaries you need to set with other men and other women. Maybe it's boundaries with your screen or how much you eat or drink. Or maybe it's boundaries with your words or with your emotions. Maybe you've fallen out of community and, and you need to plug back into a missional community and get involved in a DNA. Maybe it's boundaries with, I mean, I'm not, maybe it's, I need to get back in the scriptures and spend time with Jesus. Like, I, I can't identify or set up the guardrails for you. All I know is that you need them, and so do I. And, and maybe there's, uh, there's some of you in the room, like me, who hears this and kind of, this smells like legalism a little bit, you know? Like you've got your gospel ears and you're like, wait a minute, isn't this, didn't these kind of boundaries get the Pharisees in trouble? Like, didn't they build a fence around the law and enforce that on people? And that's, Jesus wasn't very cool with that. Um, and if that's you, let me just say that I, like, we agree with you. Um, legalism is demonic. It's one of Satan's chiefest lies. Because legalism says that I can, if I obey and I'm good enough, God will accept me, and it's simply not true. But that's also not what we're saying. Um, it's like what Jared said last week. It was so good. I think legalism is a major problem in our hearts and our culture, but I think most of us in our culture have the opposite problem, which is that we have no guardrails. And it's almost like in our, in our zeal for the gospel, like in, our, in the name of grace and gospel freedom, um, it, it's like we've, we've bought into this lie that I can do or say or watch or listen to or participate in whatever. As long as I don't go too far, I can pretty much do whatever I want and grace abounds. It gives me permission to do that. And Paul says in Romans 6, may it never be. It's not how this works. And when we put ourselves in that position, Myself included, we put ourselves in an extremely vulnerable, dangerous position. These guardrails are not rules and regulations by which you are trying to save yourself and, and prove that God should love you. It's, these are boundaries, uh, that, these, are, these are guardrails that close the door on the enemy's influence and help keep you tethered to Jesus. I can't think of anything you need more. So, Lastly, and I'll, I'll close on this point, okay? We'll meditate here on Colossians 2 and we're done. Last thing, Paul says, uh, going back to 2 Corinthians 10, we don't have to put this on the screen. Paul says the weapon we have destroys spiritual strongholds. Destroys it, brick by brick. Um, whatever fortress the enemy's trying to build in your soul, we have a weapon, Paul says, that can destroy it. That, that, that stands no chance against it. And what Paul's talking about in context is the gospel. And so what's amazing, moving to Colossians 2, 13 through 15, is Paul says on the cross, Jesus died for your sins. He canceled your record of debt for your sin. And in Christ, you're forgiven and accepted by God. That's your true identity. That's who you are. Live into that. And then Paul says this in Colossians 2, 15. Having disarmed, think about that word, disarmed the powers and authorities. That's all dark forces. Jesus made a public spectacle of them triumphing over them by the cross. And so Paul says Jesus has disarmed the devil, which means the devil doesn't come at you with an AK-47 and say, you're going to do what I say. He doesn't have any power. He comes at you disarmed. He comes at you with lies, empty, vain words. He comes at you with hot air. And the only power he has is the power that we give him. And so Paul's, Paul says, take this gospel internalize it, embrace it, believe it. And, and, and when you do, you realize that when your trust is in Jesus, you're free to fight against the devil and his schemes, knowing that ultimately you can't lose.
You can't lose if you're in Christ. And, and that brings us to this table. Each week we come to this table and celebrate the fact that, that gospel literally means victory. Like it means good news victory. And the good news victory that this meal announces over the universe is that Jesus suffered and died in our place to defeat sin, death, and hell and Satan once and for all. And all who put their trust in him will, will be forgiven and fully accepted and redeemed in relationship with God. And if that's you this morning, then, man, we want to invite you to come and celebrate Christ's victory. Come and break. The way we do this is you take a piece of bread off and you dip it in the cup. And we'll have, you know, we have two stations here on each side of me and two in the back. And back here to my left and your right is a, a gluten-free option. I want to invite you to go ahead and just stand um, and keep your heart, as the band comes forward, keep your heart kind of engaged in what the Spirit is doing and saying in this moment. And if you're in this room and um, you're not following Jesus, you wouldn't say that Jesus is your Lord and your Savior. We're so glad you're here. We don't have um, really anything off limits to you, but uh, here as a church, very rare uh, do we have anything. But we would say in, in relationship with this meal that if that's you, you would instead of taking this meal, you would just take Jesus. Consider what it would mean for you this morning to take what you've heard about the gospel and just to, to realize that this is the good news that you've been searching for. And unlike um, the, the, the Gentiles in Ephesus or unlike any of us in this room apart from grace, do not harden your heart, but open it up to receive Christ this morning. And if, you, if that's you or if you want to talk about that or process that, I would love to meet with you after the service. Uh, Jared uh, will be here in the front. We would love to talk with you and pray with you and process that with you. So let me pray for us and then let's come and celebrate. Father, thank you for Jesus. And thank you that we're not left to fight alone, that we have weapons, we have a family of faith, we have your Holy Spirit, we have your word, we have your gospel. So I pray even this morning for um, liberation, for those in this room this morning who um, their strongholds set up in their mind and their body, their heart, bitterness, unforgiveness, pain, anger, Whatever it might be, I just pray, Holy Spirit, you would break in and break down those walls and bring a flood of the Father's love. We ask that you would do this for your glory. In Christ's name.